Carl Wallenda was born in 1905 in Germany to a circus family. By age six, he was performing with that family. By 11, he was performing solo acts in beer halls, balancing several chairs on top of each other, climbing to the top to do a handstand. He, he then answered an ad to be part of a tightrope act in his early teens. He was trained in the art. I'm sure there were many rules, such as walk carefully, don't look down, and most importantly, don't fall. You ever feel like those are the, those are the commands for the Christian life? Walk carefully, don't look down, and don't fall. At 17, Walenda struck out on his own, recruiting three others to include a young lady named Helen who would eventually become his wife. They created their own troop of tight rope walkers, and the great Walendas were born. They soon became famous, uh, traveling all over uh, Europe. Their premier act included a three-level pyramid. It's not an actual picture of them, but these are some descendants doing the act. Two men on bicycles on the wire, a bar between them, uh, Carl balancing on a chair, remember he liked to do that, uh, with Helen on his shoulders. This was all done 50 feet in the air with a net below. I imagine they were careful how they walked, probably like some of, probably like some of you feel. It was while performing in Cuba that John Ringling saw the act, recruited them for the, quote, greatest show on earth, the Barnum and Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. Uh, their debut performance was in 1928 at Madison Square Garden, but there was a glitch. When their equipment uh, was uh, shipped from Germany, the net was lost in transit. So they performed the act without a net. And the crowd went wild, gave them a 15-minute standing ovation. Can you imagine? 50 feet in the air, no net. I suppose they were very careful how they walked. And I suppose that there are people who applaud you when you do it successfully. They were soon the headline act for the circus in Akron, Ohio. An accident happened. It was very minor. While performing this particular a famous pyramid. They fell, but only to the wire. No one was seriously hurt. The newspaper report the next day said they fell so gracefully it seemed as if they were flying. And the headline read, The Flying Walendas, and the new name stuck. In 1947, they created a never-before-done seven-person pyramid. This is an actual picture. They performed the act successfully for 15 years without a net until tragedy struck 15 years later. In 1962, performing in Detroit, the lead person slipped, the pyramid collapsed, three of the men fell all the way to the ground, two were killed, one, Kyle and Helen's son, was paralyzed from the waist down. I suspect we may have some paralyzed people here this morning because you've fallen. After this, Carl, smaller troupe performed primarily at promotional events, skywalking between buildings, uh, football stadiums. 1978, at the age of 73, Carl Walenda was doing a promotional event in San Juan, Puerto, Puerto Rico, in 30 
mile-an-hour winds when he fell to his death. Watch very carefully how you walk, and I wonder if we have any like that here this morning. You ever felt like you were walking a tightrope? That, that one more misstep could spell disaster? That the Christian life is a lot like that, perilous? You've experienced some failures along the way, some many disasters. And, and then, and then the past few weeks, we've moved into Paul's commands, the second half of Ephesians, and you felt just a little bit overwhelmed. How in the world am I supposed to do all of this stuff, Scott? Come on, 40 commands. I can hardly keep track of one or two. And you have left those doors each week a little more careful, a little more precarious, one or two more things on your to-do list, not quite sure how you're going to do it, and you feel like that you're perched on the top of a, a pyramid and you are close to plunging to the ground, truth be told, you already have. I have some very, very good news for you this morning. You do not have to try to do this alone. You do not have to muster up your own resources. You don't have to do it in your own strength. God calls us to a walk, a, a careful walk, worthy of the calling that we've received, but then He gives us everything we need to do it. It's right in the middle of our text this morning, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and following. It says, therefore, there's that word again, be careful how you walk, and you feel weighted down. Not as unwise men, but as wise. Add that to your to-do list. Making the most of your time, got to be careful with, got to be good keeper, timekeepers now, because the days are evil. You know that. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You say, I'm trying, and, and, and here's another one. Don't get drunk with wine, because that just leads to dissipation, and you're going, I'm, I'm trying, but the truth is I failed in that one. I want you to be filled with the Spirit. I want you to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for the things, uh, for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Walking the tightrope of the Christian life right along with you is the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you will let Him, He will perch you on His shoulders. I told you the first three chapters only have one command. It was actually the word remember. But the second three chapters have 40 commands. Paul centers that, those commands around the word walk. I won't take the time to uh, review, review all of them. Go ahead and hit the next slide there. There you go. There you go. They're, they're on the screen. I won't take time, but there's, there's a good to-do list for you. Now we've added another one. Weigh, weigh you down even more as you walk in the world, dangers and disasters all around, 30, 30 mile an hour gales around you. Now here, try really, really hard to keep your balance. Go ahead. You got all, you, we got all those commands. Try hard. Not exactly. You are not left without resources, the resource to walk the Christian life successfully. And I want to share it with you this morning. Here's the outline of the text. The command is to be careful how you walk. But then he, 
As he's been doing, he contrasts that walk. There are three of them this morning. Don't be unwise, be wise. Don't be foolish, know what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. And and that command to be filled with the Spirit is then followed with four, actually five participles, meaning the participles are those ing words, meaning this is how you are filled with the Spirit, or it could be this is the result of being filled with the Spirit. We're speaking to one another. We are singing and, and making melody to the Lord. We're giving thanks to God, and we're submitting to one another. I, I, I put this detailed outline to the screen for some very specific purposes. It's in the middle of the passage that we see the power that God gives us to keep all of these commands. It's not by our power. never has been. The Christian life has never been. But what I have done, it's always been and always will be what God does. And you say, well, you know, I got that. I I understand that Christian life is me and the Holy Spirit. And And that's the problem. You see, there is a sense in which that's true, but it falls woefully short of a full understanding of the Christian life. We are far too individualistic in our culture and, frankly, in the church. And Paul is going to tell us, listen, I want you to be filled with the the Spirit. That's the power that you need to accomplish everything that I'm telling you in these three chapters. And I do want to make sure that you get that. I don't want you to leave those doors each week adding more to your to-do list, more to your pyramid of commands, and, and, and suggest that you somehow try and figure that out and balance it on your own. You will come crashing down, some of you. Some of you have. And you come in this morning wounded, and you're going, okay, give me some more stuff I can't do. I want you to know that God has provided what you need to be able to live the Christian life successfully through His Holy Spirit. But the Christian life was never intended to be lived in isolation. Paul, even as Paul tells us, I want you to be filled with the Spirit, the sentence does not end with a period. Paul goes on to tell us some necessary actions and attitudes necessary to be filled with the Spirit, or perhaps this is the result of being filled with the Spirit. The point I want you to see is that this, it takes a corporate community living the Christian life together, speaking truth to each other, singing to the Lord, giving thanks to God, and submitting to one another by which we are filled or prove that we are. Either way, it's the same result. Here's what I want you to catch. We together are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we need each other to fully be filled by, with, through His Spirit. These commands, speak, sing, be thankful, submit, are are, are not a miscellaneous hodgepodge of to-dos. Don't write those down thinking that, God, that Paul just threw them in for good measure, they are inextricably linked with the filling of the Spirit. I will go so far as to say this. You wake up every morning and say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit, and then you have nothing to do with other Christians, nothing to do with the church, it is likely you will come crashing down. 
in a, in, a, in a world today, in a society, in a culture today that has made the church of Jesus Christ optional, I want you to understand we need each other to walk the Christian life successfully. Look at it, starting with the central command. Centered on the word walk. Be careful more literally. Watch carefully how you walk. There are dangers all around. You should got that. I want you to avoid pitfalls and missteps. Trying. The, the, the Christian life takes careful focus and attention. It is not to be approached lightly. Okay. Many of us give very careful attention to lots of things, maybe even good things, jobs, hobbies, sports, education, end of the semester, good, family, I mean, yeah, families, and maybe even politics. And we should do the best we can with those other areas of focus. But we should, but we should give very careful attention to how we walk as Christians. I want to suggest it should be the focus of our energy. energy. Here's some questions for you to consider. Do you spend as much energy, attention, and focus on the things of Christ, worship, discipleship, as all of your other interests? Would your library, would your daily habits, would your viewing habits, would your, would your checkbook, would your calendar reveal the priorities of your life? It's been said, give me your checkbook and your calendar and I can tell you what's important to you. See, we're going to come back in just a, a moment to when Paul says, live as wise people making the most of your time. Does your checkbook and your calendar show that? Be very, very careful how you walk. Special focus, attention. What does this walk look like? He's been describing it in the second half of the book, but now he adds a few other descriptive contrasting commands. Leads to our second point, three contrasts. First, do not walk as unwise people, but walk as wise people. He's, he's drawing on that very clear Old Testament concept, especially from the book of Proverbs, where wisdom is clearly described the, the wise are contrasted throughout the book uh, with the unwise. We, we could go there, but let's not forget Paul's use of the, the word wisdom in the book of Ephesians already. He's used the word three times in the doctrinal section. This is what he said. The wisdom of God is seen in the gospel. And, how, and, and he says in that gospel, that wisdom is being is being seen in the summing up of all things in His Son, the Christ. That's wisdom. Everything is about Christ. In fact, Paul then prayed that God would give us a Holy Spirit of wisdom to be able to understand the glorious truth of the gospel and all of its benefits, and that it's all about things being summed up in Christ. That's wisdom. He speaks of the manifold wisdom of God in making this mystery of the gospel known, specifically that he's taken a bunch of low-life Gentiles and he has united us with the Jews into a new entity called the church. Now that's wisdom. He said, now walk as wise people. Understand the gospel. Understand that we are people who have been reconciled to God, a people who are the physical, literal demonstration 
through the church that God is in the process of summing up everything in Christ. Live that way. And make the most of your time. What, what, what does it mean to make the most of our time? Obviously, it's a recognition that time is very fleeting, very valuable. Once spent, it can never be recovered. And so, kind of going back to that first point, we should examine our lives and priorities to discover if we are making the most of every moment for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. That's a little overwhelming. Every moment. It's a recognition, frankly, that we waste much of our time, and Paul is calling us to be to a different lifestyle. He says the days are evil. Live as children of light in a very dark world. Make the most. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in Northampton, Massachusetts during the first half of the 18th century. He was a leader in what we call the Great Awakening, perhaps second only to George Whitfield. Before his 20th birthday, which means some of you are already behind, before his 20th birthday, he had written 70 resolutions by which he sought to govern his life. And the 70th resolution, the very last one, read, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. And as you read his resolution, what he means is to, to, to improve upon it, to, to, to live it to the fullness of the kingdom of Christ every moment. I need just responsible for the Great Awakening, uh, 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 served at, yeah, just the founder of Princeton. He did do a few things uh, in his life every moment. I am not suggesting that there is not a place for relaxation and entertainment. I'm suggesting we're imbalanced. I'm not suggesting there's not a place for rest and exercise. I want you to think over this past week, how much time have you spent making the most of, well, yourself? And how much time have you spent making the most of every opportunity for the kingdom of Christ? Second contrast, verse 17, do not be foolish. Foolish is the opposite of, of, of wisdom. It's the same as saying uh, being unwise. Don't be unwise. Don't be foolish. Instead, understand what the will of the Lord is. And as followers of Christ, we understand that the will of the Lord is primarily found in Scripture. It's not hidden. We don't have to go searching for it. It's found in Scripture. It's not to say that we don't seek God for certain directions in our lives and trust that by His Spirit He will lead us in, in some decisions we need to make. But Paul here is saying, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. He's simply saying this. Will you, we need to be people of the Bible. We need to know it, and we need to apply it. Third contrast, especially appropriate for today in a world that has gone absolutely nuts with drugs and alcohol. And it seems like that Paul is taking a right turn. I mean, it's like, wait a minute, don't, live wisely, don't live foolishly, understand what the will of the Lord is. And then we go back to those Old Testament passages and we understand that alcohol, strong drink, um, helps us live very foolish lives. So don't get drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk. Let me say a few things about that. 
first. People ask me all the time, so let me just go ahead and address it. Uh, let me just go ahead and address it right out. The Bible does not condemn alcohol per se. Rather, it condemns drunkenness. It condemns coming under the influence or power of mind-altering substances like alcohol. We can throw in any drugs beyond those used for medicinal purposes. So, okay, okay, all right. I will not condemn drinking by itself. Rather, I will speak as the Scripture does, and I will condemn drunkenness and coming under the influence of drugs. And it says, don't do that. It's very clear. This is a command. This is imperative. Don't get drunk with wine. If you... It doesn't condemn drinking per se. So if you choose to drink, I want you to ask yourself several questions. First very important question is why. Why am I drinking? Because I can. Well, that's good. But just because something is permissible, permissible does not mean it is beneficial. I, I'm not saying, some of you are saying, I have wine in my refrigerator. I don't care. Is it prudent? Does it set a good example? Is it wise stewardship? Here you go. Is it making the most of every opportunity? Another question that we need to ask ourselves in today's world is how much alcohol does it take to make you under the influence? You see, you have to understand that Paul wrote this hundreds of years before the process of distillation was invented. Alcohol, when Paul was writing, was not nearly what alcohol is today. Then it was not nearly as strong. You must be careful. It does not take much to come under its influence. You chose, you, you want to do that? Fine. I really do not care. Be careful. Let me also say this. I told my Freedom Farm friends and, and, and brothers just because the Bible does not condemn drinking, but rather drunkenness, does not mean we should imbibe. It is amazing to me that the number of stories that I've heard as I've met with my, my brothers, hundreds of them have been through my office through the years. It is amazing to me the number of times that I have heard the story start this way. Dad was an alcoholic. Mom was a drug addict. If drugs or alcohol abuse run in your runs in your family, you would be foolish to try it. Not only that, if addiction has been a problem for you, it is foolish to pick it up again and to try and control it. I would say to you, it is not worth the gamble. It's not the wor worth the risk. Is, I, I would encourage you to say, I love Jesus more than I love beer. And if you can't say that, you might have a problem. I'll put it aside. It's not worth it. Again, I want to be very clear. I don't care. What I do care is its abuse. Drunkenness, you see, leads to dissipation. That is, that's a word that speaks of all other kinds of wild and uncontrolled sinful activity. And you know what I'm talking about. Drunkenness lowers the defenses. You are no longer in control. The spirit is certainly no longer in control. And sinful choices become that much easier to make. Instead, he says, of coming under the control of something like alcohol, which 
really just surrenders you to your sinful passions. He says, be filled rather with the Spirit. To be filled means to come under the control of, this is why they're contrasted here, instead of coming under the control of a substance, come under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, the wording there could be, be filled with the Spirit or be filled, huge fly, <laughs> right where I was reading. Yeah, right. <laughs> it could be, be filled with the Spirit or be filled by the Spirit. So the questions are, important questions are, who does the filling and what does He fill us with? Most agree that the text is saying that the filling is done by the Holy Spirit. He's the agent. But what does He fill us with? You say, well, it fills with the Holy Spirit. That, that's, that's very likely, very probable. But for your consideration, Paul has prayed in his letter that we be filled with the fullness of God. You say, well, yeah, that's the Holy Spirit. That's fine. But in the end, I don't think it really matters because Paul is obviously talking about being filled by God with the fullness of God so that we are controlled by God. And you, many of you know that this be filled is in the present tense, which tells us to keep on being filled with the Spirit. This is a this is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day surrender to the control of the Spirit of God in your life. It is waking up every morning and perhaps several times during the day saying, God, I need you to take control of me. Because if I take control, I'm going to mess it up. I've proven that. This brings us to the very point of the morning. The only way that you can accomplish all that Paul has called us to do in 40 commands, we're not done with the commands, by the way, but with these 40 commands is to allow the Spirit of God to fill you and control you. It takes your full surrender. Spirit, I need you to take control of my life. I can't do it. I never have been able to do it. I, I never have been able to do it. I need you to do it. My prayer is, that, is, is not that you leave each week adding to a list, a to-do list, my prayer is that we understand more and more our complete dependence on God to do His commands. My, my prayer is, is that we see these commands and we tighten our grip a little more on the Spirit who's carrying us across. I do, however, want you to notice that verse 18, as I said earlier, does not begin with a end with a period, it ends with a comma. And at first glance, it could seem like that Paul is just saying, don't be unwise, be wise, don't be foolish, do the will of the Lord, don't get drunk, be filled with the Spirit. And here, I have a few miscellaneous thoughts, and this is as good a place as any to stick them in. Speak to one another, sing in your hearts to the Lord, give thanks and submit. The only problem is that is not what Paul is doing. That's not what the Greek construction allows. There is a comma after be filled with the Spirit, followed by, as I said earlier, participles which support the main verb of the sentence, that is, be filled. I want you to be f keep on being filled with the Spirit, speaking, singing, giving thanks, and submitting. 
Now that means either I want you to be filled with the Spirit by doing these things, or I want you to be filled with the Spirit, and the proof that you are is doing these things. Doesn't really matter. Either way, point is we need each other. These commands are inextricably linked with the filling of the Spirit. I, I love studying the Scripture verse by verse. It forces us to look at verses in their context because I have been taking, wrenching this verse out of its context my whole life. Now, I haven't. I mean, I, I've understood what the verse says, but I've never seen it in the context of the verses that follow. Because Paul is saying, listen, be, keep on being filled with the Spirit. And these are ways... Certainly not the only ways, but these are ways to be filled with the Spirit. These are ways to prove that you are filled by the Spirit. So, you want to be filled with the Spirit? You want to prove that you are either one. I don't care. Do this. First, we are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This communicates several truths. Could have preached a whole message on this. Buckle up. First, speak to one another suggests that there are others to speak to. As I said earlier, the Christian life is never intended to be lived alone. The speaking, the singing of songs has two intended audiences. Obviously, God as an act of worship, but also each other as an act of discipleship. So when you come in here, we gather as a corporate body on Sunday mornings, and you stand there with your hands in your pocket, and you're not singing. Next time, you're doing that. I want someone else you to say, thanks a lot. You're supposed to be speaking to me. It tells me, secondly, these psalms, hymns, and songs that we sing must be right. They must be biblically and doctrinally sound. You see, we're speaking to each other. The words that we say are important. We are to communicate truth to each other. Third thing this tells me is that the, the very fact that he lists uh, he, he has a list of different kinds of speaking and singing implies different forms. I'm not going to try to define them. Some try to, some said you can't. I don't know. But Paul allows for different forms. That means there's not one form that is more spiritual than others. Fourth, some suggest the word spiritual actually goes with all three of them. These are supposed to be spiritual psalms and spiritual hymns and spiritual songs. To be spiritual means to be of the Spirit, not Spirit-inspired like Scripture, but of the Spirit in that they can contain spiritual, biblical truth. This is what we're supposed to speak to each other. And so can I say, as our worship pastor gets ready to go on sabbatical, how thankful I am for the diversity of forms in which he leads us, as well as the spiritual truth of what we are saying. They are biblically and doctrinally sound to God in worship and to one another in discipleship. Very thankful for that man. So, thank you. Yeah. So, he's, he's out there, but I'll tell him you like him. So, we speak truth to one another in these ways, and second, we sing and make melody with our heart to the Lord. The word Lord in the book of Ephesians um, speaks of Jesus, so we are to sing and make melody with our hearts to Jesus. With our hearts, I suppose it's much better for some of us to sing with our hearts than with our mouths. 
What it actually means is that we are to be so saturated with truth, biblical wisdom we've been talking about, the will of the Lord, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks, that this truth captures our hearts and we understand. We're not shouldn't just think emotions, all right? Music, we think emotions, but the heart in Greek and and Jewish literature spoke of the center of our being, everything we are, intellect, emotion, and will, which means there should be a balance in the songs that we sing because we're so saturated with the things of Christ, we sing from the depths of our being to Him. It's just who we are. This tells me some other things, that we must be careful what we listen to in order to have appropriate singing and melody in our hearts. And, so, and some of you parents are saying, hallelujah, but my kids are gone at youth group. As you flip the channel to your pop station or your country station. Listen, we know the extreme power of music and the impact that it has on our lives. What we hear usually stays with us. Songs that we sing, typically on Sunday morning, I'm singing the rest of the day, usually for two or three days, so my wife tells me to shut up. What we put in comes out. Let me be, let me be clear. While I am not saying that the only music you should listen to should be Christian music, I will say worship music, Christian music, should be a regular part of your diet if you want to sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord. I will also say, if music, if the music you listen to contains lyrics that are described at the beginning of chapter 4, that is sexually immoral, impure, greedy, filthy, coarse, we should not be listening to them. Garbage in, garbage out. Maybe those songs on your iPods, which have the little red tag that says explicit, should not be on your iPods. Here's something, a way for you to consider it. As you are listening to your favorite songs, would you share an earbud with Jesus? In addition to speaking to one another, in addition to singing and making melody to the Lord, we are also to give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. We, that, that, that tells us we are to direct our thanks to the Father through Jesus, much like we direct our prayers through Jesus. Paul says, as you are filled with or as you want to be filled, uh, controlled by the Spirit, be people of thanks, gratitude. For what? He tells us, for all things. We recognize the sovereign control of God in our lives, and we thank Him for everything that comes our way, whether we perceive it to be good or bad. We are just thankful people. We are not, we are not people of murmuring, complaining, and griping because we understand that those complaints are directed ultimately at God. And so we are thankful people. Fourthly and finally, Paul says we are filled with, as we are filled with the Spirit or we are filled with the Spirit by submitting to one another. This implies relationship within the body of Christ. There are all kinds of specific ways in societal structure that we are to submit. We're going to talk about household 
um, responsibilities to submit in the, uh, in, in the weeks to come, wives to husbands, children to parents, and, and, and slaves to masters. I'm looking forward to that one. Um, we're, we are to be subject to governing authorities. We're to be subject to church leaders. But generally speaking, we are to submit to one another. There are lots of ways that we do that in the church family. We hold each other accountable. We are humble toward each other. We don't lord ourselves over each other. We put others first. We look to their interests and not only to our own. Truth is, here's, here's what he's saying. As we submit to one another, we are others-focused. I'm out of time. Let me just say a couple of things and I'm done. This may all be a bit new to you. You may have been trying to live the Christian life in your own strength for years. Maybe you've been trying to muster it up, dig down deep your whole life, and the the truth is you've hit the ground many times, falling, failing, wounded, disaster, near death. You feel paralyzed. I I can't do this. I want you to understand you can't. And it takes the filling of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life successfully. You cannot do it on your own. Lastly, maybe you had that part figured out. You knew it was me and the Holy Spirit uh, to to walk with you. Uh, you. You got that, but you didn't quite fully understand that you need the church family. The Christian family called the church to be filled with the Spirit and to demonstrate His presence. You cannot do the Christian life alone, successfully or in isolation. You need the church to speak truth to and to have truth spoken to you. You need the example of gratitude. You need people to submit to. You were never intended to do this alone. Let's stand for prayer.